weird words in great hymns. This morning, in the hymn that Chelsea just sang for us, On Jordan's Stormy Banks, there's a reference to Canaan's land. What does the hymn mean when it refers to Canaan's land? Look with me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 6, and I want us to kind of review the story of Moses leading the people from Israel, because uh, from Egypt, because when Moses led the people out of Egypt, then through the wilderness, they had a specific destination. They had a place that had been promised to them. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Look with me in Exodus chapter 6, beginning at verse 2, because this paragraph summarizes the whole story for us so well. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Now, most likely when you read it in your, uh, in your copy of Scripture, it says, I am the Lord. But if you look and notice that the word Lord is all capped, not just the L, but all of the letters are capital. What that means is that God used his proper name, Yahweh. But when scripture was, rent, was, was written down and then eventually printed in order to show him reverence and not to use his proper name, it was changed to the Lord as a way uh, to let us know that every time you see Lord in all caps, you know that originally God spoke his personal name. And so we read then in verse 2 again, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. The name that they would have known me by was El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's the, that's the, the most that I revealed myself to those patriarchs, God says. When Abraham knew me, when Isaac knew me, when Jacob knew me, they knew me as the Almighty God. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, he's saying, Moses, you need to understand that there's something special that's happening here between you and me and my people. Back when I established the nation, I, I told Abraham, dude, you're going to be the father of a whole nation that's going to change the world. And then I talked to his son and I passed the blessing on to him and the promise as well. And then his son, I passed the promise to him as well. Each time God spoke to one of those patriarchs, he not only promised a great nation, but he promised each of those men that that great nation would have a place in which to reside, a promised land, a special land, not like a lot of the land that was around there that was basically desert, but this would be a land that was flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it was luscious. It was, a, it was, it, it was fertile. It was a, a beautiful land. God promised it to Abraham. He promised it to Isaac, and then he promised it 
to Jacob. And we could go back and find in Scripture where we see those promises were made. But each time he spoke to them, he did so as God Almighty, the, the Almighty God. When he speaks to Moses, however, he gives Moses his personal name. You may remember when that happened. Moses was hanging out with the, with the, the, the sheep, and uh, he looks over, and there's a bush on fire. While it's on fire, it's not burning up. It's the craziest thing. Well, that would get anyone's attention. And so Moses goes over to see a bush on fire that doesn't burn. And when he went over to see that bush on fire that doesn't burn, God spoke to him. God said, Moses, you got to go to Egypt and get my people out of there. And Moses came back with six or seven instant excuses why he couldn't do that. One of them was, God, I don't even know your name. And God said, I am. I am is Yahweh. He said, that's the, the way to understand me. The name, the label to give me, my personal name is I am. I exist. Others, other gods do not, but I am. And so he reminds Moses now in our text in chapter 6, I appeared to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my, by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now I'm at verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. See, so when our song talks about Canaan's land, it's talking about that promised land, the, the area that was promised to God's people, that promise that was reinforced generation to generation. He says that he, he uh, had a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. There was a time that Abraham walked through the area, but he didn't settle there for long. And now God says, you're going to go back home, and I'm going to make it the promised place for the whole nation. Verse 5, moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of, the, the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant... God says, I, I haven't forgotten my people. Yeah, they've been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, but I haven't forgotten them. I know where they are, and I know that as long as they are slaves in Egypt, they cannot be in the promised land. You can't be in two places at one time. So I haven't forgotten. I will keep my promise. It's time to get my people from Egypt and take them to that promised land. Verse 6, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. The promise. I'm going to bring you out of slavery. I'm going to take you to the place that is promised and prepared for you. Samuel Stinnett lived in the mid to late 1700s. And he was the son of a pastor. He was also the grandson of a pastor. And by the time he took over his father's church and became what we would call the senior pastor of his church, he was what they would have labeled a dissenter. In other words, during the 1700s in England, the Church of England was the only recognized church. However, Stennett was one of those who said, you know, I just don't think the Church of England is going in the right direction. Specifically, he wrote tremendous papers on how baptism should be the baptism of believers instead of just babies, and that baptism should be by immersion instead of sprinkling. He, he had such a voice that one of the strange things happened in his life, and that is that dissenters, what we might call separatists, were persecuted in many ways. But this guy had so much respect from the power people of the day that he didn't face that same persecution. Matter of fact, he was a very close friend with the king himself. And one of the universities in that area just gave him a doctorate. Dude didn't even have to go to school. Here, have a doctorate. Because you're so brilliant and we have such respect for you. Well, it was, you can tell, it was Samuel Stinnett who wrote a little over 30, I think it was like 34, 35 hymns. None of them made any impact. Nobody knows any of them except this one. On Jordan's stormy banks. He wrote this hymn in eight verses. We have four verses still recorded in our hymnal, but he wrote eight verses, and he probably did not write the refrain, uh, the, the chorus part, I'm bound for the promised land. That was probably added later by someone else when they added the, the music and turned a poem into a hymn. But in his him. We hear him speak of the promised land, that land that was promised to God's people as they came from Egypt. He speaks of it in a way that suggests that we as Christians have our promised land as well. Like so many other hymns and especially uh, spirituals, 
there is a parallel between the experience of Israel leaving Egypt, going through the wilderness, entering into a promised land. There's a parallel with that and with our story as believers in Christ. Because there was a time, those of us who are Christians, who've trusted in Christ, there was a time that we were enslaved as well. We weren't enslaved in Egypt, but we were enslaved by sin. Our sinful nature had complete control over all of our desires and all of our decisions. We were enslaved to sin. Well, then we were set free. And by the way, we were set free in a similar way. Do you remember, you remember how God convinced Pharaoh to let the people go? There were 10 plagues, right? You remember what was the last plague? He brought death to the firstborn of every house. However, God's people knew that the angel of death was coming, and so they knew to slay, to kill a lamb and spread the blood of the lamb above the door. Then when the angel of death came by, he passed over those houses, and that was the last straw for Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally said, okay, go. In other words, we could say that God's people were finally freed when the lamb was slain. The same thing is true for us. As believers, those of us who really have trusted in Christ, we were finally set free because the lamb was slain. Then God leads the people of Israel through the wilderness, and it is a discipleship experience. Follow me, I'm your God. Yeah, but God, we don't like this. Follow me, I'm your God. But man, life is hard. Follow me, I'm your God. And is that not our experience as believers? The preacher on TV told me if I walked the aisle, life would be perfect and easy and fun. But the reality is, life is hard. And he says, Beloved, follow me. He teaches us as we go through the wilderness that we call life until that day that we finally get to the Jordan River. The Jordan River was that last barrier between the wilderness and Canaan. The Jordan River is that last breath, that last step that takes believers from this world into the promised land. See, there is, a, there is definitely a parallel. I, I, I don't think that the story in Exodus was, was written as an analogy, or, or I'm sorry, as an allegory. It was a, it was a literal historical event. But we can, looking back at it now, we can see some important parallels. And so this hymn says, you know what, we're going to have our Canaan too. We're going to have our promised land as well. It's a land that has been promised, and it's a land that has been prepared. The last night that Jesus shared with his disciples before he went to Calvary and died for them, he said to them in John chapter 14, guys, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house 
are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen, here's the promise. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be. Also in that promised land, that place prepared for you. I love, by the way, how Jesus refers to that Canaan land, that place prepared for us. He refers to heaven, my father's house. That's where he lives. That's where he is. But in my father's house are many rooms. Friends, I think that, I think that when we get there, I think many of us are going to be shocked at some of the rooms that are in our father's house. I think we're going to be shocked when we see male, female, all different shades of skin color. We're going to be shocked when we see Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ and Catholic and Episcopalian and all the others. We're going to be surprised when we see all our good southern friends and even a few Yankees. <laughs> there are many rooms in the Father's house. In other words, there's room for any who will come and there's room for a lot of different ones of us. By the way, you know all of that stuff that I just listed? Those are divisions we make that we see have absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And so he says, guys, I want you to know, yeah, I'm about to die for you, but you need to know that there's a place that I'm going to go prepare for you, and I'm promising you right now that you get to go there. This is your Canaan land, he might say. In 2 Corinthians, Paul follows up on that great concept. He says, for we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, now hang on, the earthly tent, that word could very well be translated tabernacle. You know, that's what the tabernacle was. It was the temple in tent form. While they were wandering around in the wilderness, you don't want to build a temple because in three days you're going to have to move somewhere else. So what did you do? You made a temple out of a tent. And they moved that tent with them so they could still have a place to meet God wherever they went. It was a tent. It was temporary. It was mobile because it had to be mobile as they made their way through their journey. And Paul says, this is the tabernacle. This is the tent. The tent is expanding over the years, but it's still just a tent. It's mobile. It's temporary. It's not going to last. It's just what we need for here, for now. We know that if we have an earthly tent we live in is destroyed. And by the way, that will happen to each of us. We have a building from God, 
an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. This is a tent. But one of these days, I'm going to go to the Father's house, which is a building, which means it's permanent. And it wasn't built by human hands that can mess things up and do mess things up, but it's built by Him, prepared by Him, promised by Him. One of these days, I'm going to find myself at my Jordan River. And with God's help, I'm going to take that last breath, that final step. And I'm going to find myself in a whole new reality. The me that makes me me is still going to be. But everything else will be gone and changed. And I'm going to be in a home with my Heavenly Father, a place especially prepared for our reunion, a reunion that will last forever. In, our, in the, the great hymn, in the song, let me show you just a couple of fun words. In verse 1, the hymn says, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Jordan, the river, the last thing before I get to the promised land. Last week, we left Moses on Mount Pisgah. You remember? Mount Pisgah was that place that oversaw the Jordan, oversaw the entrance into the promised land. Moses didn't get to go. He stayed on Mount Pisgah and watched it happen. This week, we go past Mount Pisgah, and we get to the river, to the Jordan. On the, the, the stormy banks, I stand. In other words, I'm almost there. None of us knows how long our journey is. What if we were to live every day as if we're on Jordan's banks? This may be my time. I'm going to live today because I may not have 40 years to wander around in this wilderness. On Jordan's stormy bank I stand and cast a wishful eye. Unfortunately, that word has been changed. When Stimmett wrote it, the word was wistful. Over the years, nobody knew what wistful was, and so they changed it to a word we understood, wishful. But they are slightly different, and they're different in an important way. When I go over to Socorro Family Ford, and I see the latest and greatest Mustang, I look at that thing with wishful eyes. Man, I would love to have that thing, but it's probably not going to happen. Wistful, however, is not, I wish, but it probably won't. It might not. It could, but maybe no. Wistful is, I know I'm going to be there. I just can't wait. I'm longing. I'm eager. And when we changed the word, we missed part of the point. This land is promised. It's not a hope so. If I'm a child of God, I get to go home to be in God's house. I look with wistful eyes, longing, desiring what I know 
will be mine. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast that wistful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Look, they're my possessions. I own what's there. Why? Because I am a joint heir with Christ, according to the Bible. The Bible says that if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I have been adopted into his family. And when I got adopted into God's family, I became a joint heir with the firstborn, with Jesus. And Jesus promised that I've got a place. That's my possession. It's a sure deal. So I stand on Jordan's stormy bank. I look at it with that wistful eye. I long for what will be mine. 1 Peter chapter 1 has this beautiful benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance. It's yours. You just don't get it yet. That's the way inheritances work, right? One of these days, Ashley and Bryson are going to get everything we own. They'll be able to put it in a box. <laughs> but they're going to get it all. But you know what? It's not theirs yet. It's their inheritance. And when I say it's not theirs, that's not technically true. They should see it as theirs, but it's not in their possession yet. 1 Peter says, we have that living hope. And it's not based on our actions, on what I deserve, but it's based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He died and he came back to life. That's what assures me of all this. And because of that, now I have an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's being kept in heaven. One of these days, I'll claim my inheritance. One of these days, I'll cross that river. Through my years of ministry, I have either conducted or attended hundreds, I think we could say thousands of funerals. As I look back over 30 years, do some really quick math, I get into the thousands of funerals that I've either led or attended. And in that time, I've discovered that there are basically three kinds of funerals. There is one where the family has no hope and no joy. We gather to grieve. And that's the end of the story. There are those funerals where the family hopes, maybe, possibly, our friend, our loved one, 
did what they needed to do or they were who they were supposed to be, but we're not quite sure. And then there is the third kind of funeral. The kind of funeral I attended yesterday. The kind of funeral that says, this person that we loved, loved Jesus more than anybody else. And because this person loved Jesus more than she loved us even, we know that she's with him now. The hope that is a living hope from 1 Peter. The hope that's based on his death and resurrection, not on my attempts to do something, to be something, but the assurance, absolutely sure, that someone has crossed the Jordan and is in that promised land, the place prepared for them. You say, preacher, you can't know for sure. Oh, yes, you can. I want to show you 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11. This is the testimony that God gave us. Do you see that word gave? Some of us have lived our lives trying to live up to grandma's expectations, trying to please mama enough that we could be good enough that maybe we could get God's attention. Maybe we could be religious enough to earn what he offers. And every one of us who has wasted one minute trying to earn something from God have completely missed the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ is he chose to love you when you didn't deserve to be loved. And he loved you when you didn't deserve it so much that he paid the penalty for sin. The Bible says if you sin, you die. Jesus says, I love you so much, I'll do the dying for you. And then eternal life is a gift. Not something I earn, it's grace. By grace were you saved, by faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, if you could do it on your own, you'd brag about it so much you'd take glory away from God so it doesn't work that way. He gives us, it's a gift. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. It's not in being right or religious. Whoever has the son has life. Why? Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. If we have him, we have the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's that simple. How do we know while we wander through this wilderness called life, how do we know that we're going to wind up in a land that is promised? Well, that promise is for true believers, children of God, people who trust Jesus. And if that's you, then you have an inheritance waiting. 
established, sure thing, just on the other side. In our hymn, someone later added the chorus, but the chorus has such good words as well. The chorus says, I'm bound for the promised land. You hear that assurance? I don't hope so. I don't, I don't wonder. I'm bound for the promised land. Not because I'm good enough, but because I know I'm not good enough, but I know the one who is. I've trusted in Jesus and he's changed me. He gave me a new life. And now I know based on him, he's going to take me home. I'm bound for the promised land. And then notice the question and we're done. Oh, who will come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. Who's going to go with me? Are you sure that you know? When you take your last step of the wilderness journey of life, will that last step be the one that crosses the Jordan into the promised land? I know that's where I'm going, not because I'm good. I know that I'm going to go there because Jesus is good and he gave it to me. Are you going to be there with me?